Life's too short for crap marketing. The Got Marketing Podcast is for marketers, business owners, and entrepreneurs who want marketing that's fun, accessible, and meaningful. Join me, Mia Feilman, for inspired chats with my favorite marketing insiders about marketing that works, campaigns that inspire, and the fads, fakery, and false profits to avoid. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Got Marketing Show. Understanding humans and our flaws is at the heart of effective marketing. Science plays a key role in marketing, especially the science of psychology. Many platforms, tools, trends, they promise to revolutionize marketing. But the reality is humans and how our brains tick remains largely the same. So in this episode, we're going to chat about human behavior. We will explore three fascinating behavioral biases and unpack recognizable campaigns that tap into this bias in order to influence customers. To do this with me, there was only really one choice of guest, and that is Dan Monheit, the CEO of Hard Hat. The intersection of marketing and behavioral science is Dan's jam. In fact, he's got a whole episode about jam on the Bad Decisions podcast that I highly recommend you listen to straight after this one. Now, a word of warning. This episode discusses applied psychology and how it can be used to influence customers. These are serious tools not to be abused. Marketers who have weaponized psychology have given the rest of us a bad name. Marketers and snake oil salesmen are often lumped together. And that's like a dagger in my heart as I've dedicated 21 years of my life to the noble profession of marketing. With that in mind, let's get into it. Dan Monheit, my guest today, as I said, is the CEO of Hard Hat, Australia's foremost creative agency built around behavioral science. Dan is on a mission to help more business leaders, marketers, and brands understand why people do the things they do. His expertise in this space has seen him present on the topic to thousands of people, both locally and at major international events, including South by Southwest in Texas. Welcome to the potty, Dan Monheit. I'm so thrilled you're here. Hey, man, so good to be here. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> Excited to be on here with you. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. So there's a really cool story about how we got to make this happen. I run a Facebook group and one of the people in my Facebook group posted a link to a smart company article that you wrote about the water in a can liquid death. Is that what it's called? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Such a good brand. Yeah, yeah. Such a good brand. And I read this op-ed in Smart Company and I was like, first of all, this is so good. But also the writing was just exceptional. So then I like tapped on your link in Smart Company, read half a dozen other of your Smart Company articles. Then I discovered you had a podcast, binged the podcast on the weekend. And like within two days, I was like this super fan (laughs) and reached out to you via LinkedIn, best social media channel ever, and said, I think we should absolutely get into this on a chat on a potty. And you graciously said yes. And here we are. Here we are. It's probably been less than two weeks since all of that happened. And I think this is my first podcast I've done, which came with a warning at the start of it. So uh, who who knows what we're in for? This is going to be great. (laughs) Totally. All right. Well, let's get into it. First of all, what is a behavioral and cognitive bias? I think we should probably start with that before we dive into discussing three of them. (laughs) Nice. Start with a nice easy one. What is a cognitive bias? 
So if it's okay, if I may, I might just wind out just a couple of steps because behavioral biases, as we're going to discuss them today, are part of a field of study called behavioral science or behavioral economics. And this is a field of study that has been around since around the 1950s. In the 70 years since has developed oceans of evidence based on thousands and thousands of peer-reviewed studies that help us understand why people do the things that they do, especially the weird kind of irrational things that they do. At the core of behavioral science is, I wouldn't even say an acceptance, but more a two-armed bear-hug embrace of the idea that we are nowhere near the rational decision makers that we would like to think we are. And in fact, most of our choices are made based on biases, based on emotion, based on the context within which we make those decisions. And so one of the key findings of behavioral science are these things called heuristics or biases. A heuristic or a bias is a common psychological quirk that impacts our decision-making, often resulting in us doing something that does not make perfect rational, logical sense. So if you're an alien looking at us from outer space and you observed how we go about our days, there are many, many things that we would do that you would think to yourself, what is this person doing? I mean, why is this person standing outside a full restaurant when there is an empty restaurant across the street waiting for them? You know, lots and lots of these sorts of things and behavioral biases, which I think of as the cheat code of the game of sales, they help us understand these things. Fascinating. I mean, you and I agree on this, but this is absolutely just so fascinating because we're really getting to the core of what makes us human and those flaws and those quirks and then the shortcuts that we take. And it's all subconscious, right? It is. And you know, most of the decision-making that we do in a day is subconscious or unconscious. We don't even realize that we're doing it. So as marketers and advertising people who our professions are to help influence choice, it seems crazy that more people are not as obsessed by this field of study as I am because this is a, a whole world of evidence about why people make the choices that they make. I put it down to there's just not as many people who are as big as nerds as us. <laughs> Possibly. There is a lot of research to get through for this, but we'll try and keep it lighthearted today. Keep it breezy. All right. So just briefly, how many biases are there? One of the things that, that hasn't happened in this field yet, because it is a relatively recent field of study, is we don't have a periodic table of behavioral biases yet. And it's still something that is a work in progress, but there are somewhere between 200 and 300 of these biases that have been researched and documented. But as you'd imagine, within that 200 to 300, there's a small subset of maybe a dozen, maybe 20 that really get the, the lion's share of attention. Great. And at this point, I want to say that since there is 200 to 300 biases, Dan and I have chosen three. So a lot of effort went into choosing those three. Ah. So we are going to talk about the first bias, which is the effort bias. And then we're going to talk about a really recognizable campaign that puts this into action. I see what you did there with all the work we put in to prepare this podcast. Yes. <laughs> I love that you do that on your podcast and I totally just stole that. That's all right. How do you want to do this? Do you want to, do you want to just start unpacking what this is? Tell me what it is. What is the effort bias? All right. The effort bias is sort of a tendency that we have to assume that the more effort that has gone into making something, the more valuable that thing is. And there are lots and lots of studies that have been conducted to sort of demonstrate this bias. They all follow a fairly similar format. The, the one that I will talk you guys through is one from 2004. It was done by Kruger et al. And in this experiment, participants were brought in, randomly split into two groups, and each group was given an identical set of poems to review. 
And the groups were asked to read these poems and then to rate them on a series of attributes, including the uh, level of enjoyment they felt reading the poem, the overall quality of the poem, and how much money they thought a poetry magazine should pay to publish that poem within their wonderful pages, which clearly 2004 poetry magazines still a very, very big deal, um, just a little before Google kind of took over. Now, the only difference here was that one group had been told that these poems had taken four hours to write, while the other group had been to- told that the exact same poems had taken 18 hours to write. And you guys got there before I did, right? You know how this ends. The group that had been told that the poems had taken 18 hours to write consistently rated them as of a higher quality, of more enjoyable, and as worth more money to a poetry magazine than when they had been told that they had only taken four hours to write. This exact study has been repeated with everything from whiskey to wine to painting to pottery. It doesn't really seem to matter what it is, whether we are experts or amateurs. We cannot separate this idea that if we perceive lots of effort has gone into something, we think that what comes out must be more valuable. So in this case, effort is a shortcut for quality. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And and there probably was, you know, some point in human history where the two were a very good approximation, where our supply chains, in air quotes, were very, very short. So you would be buying a bread directly from a baker. You would be buying a sword from a silversmith or a basket from a basket weaver. And it was quite easy to see, you know, the, the expertise of the person making it and how long they had been working on this thing for. But today, most supply chains are impossible to understand. We don't know what actually goes into making a set of AirPods or a pen or a a microphone. And even though the effort probably doesn't have an actual real impact on the value, like it used to back in the day, it's certainly still something that we have trouble decoupling. All right. So how do we apply this to marketing? How can we use that effort bias to our advantage? Yeah. So the way to definitely not use this is to make what you do harder, make it more complicated, make it slower, thinking that, well, if I can just show people that this social media post has taken me 32 hours to make, they are really, really going to like it. And the reason we don't need to do this is number one, it's ridiculous. But number two, if you are running a business, a brand, an organization, there is inherently complicated things happening behind the scenes. And what we tend to do and what we tend to be told to do is to make everything always look smooth and seamless and to kind of abstract a lot of the work we do behind the scenes from what the customer sees. And I think the best way we can use the effort bias is to selectively let people see us sweat a little bit. Think of ways to surface and celebrate the effort that is clearly already going on behind the scenes, whether it is to do with our sourcing or our craft or the expertise of the people that work here. Let people know a little bit about what goes in and they will think that whatever you are providing is more valuable than they otherwise would. Fascinating. So there's this prevailing narrative in the online marketing space where I play of this notion that I worked 10 hours a week, only 10 hours a week while sipping mimosas by the pool and I generated six figures, which seems to go against what's going on in our brains with the effort bias. So how is a comment like that perceived where it's like, well, I only work four hours a week, but you should totally buy my online course because it's awesome. Yeah, please let me know where to sign up for this online course. Um, So this is actually a a great place for the blanket disclaimer that invariably comes up in every interview and presentation that I do. I should probably just open with it. There is no single bias that works on every person in every context for every type of purchase decision. As we said, there are sort of somewhere between 200 and 300 of these that work in various ways, sometimes 
in cooperation with each other. Sometimes they actually go head to head with each other. And something that is really meaningful for me might be less meaningful for you. Something that's meaningful for me in one type of purchase might actually work against it in another type of purchase. So there is room for everything. And yes, while some people will be turned on by the idea of thinking they can buy a book and then only work four hours a week to make a six-figure income, many others will put value in knowing that the person writing that book has spent a very, very long time doing it, so it must be pretty good. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. That That's a very good disclaimer. And so is there a tipping point? Because like, if I tell my audience it took me three hours to write a social media post, won't they just assume I'm a really bad marketer because it shouldn't take that long to do it? Yeah. I think when the, the effort hits the point of incompetence, it's probably you put, you've put too much salt on, you know, a little bit's good, too much is not so good. But you see, the idea of this is, is not to surface everything. It is not to deliberately make things harder. It is to be selective about giving customers a little bit more of a look at what happens behind the scenes. And you know, you see this sometimes if you go into a nudie jeans retail store, they often have uh, people sitting there repairing jeans or, or making jeans. And it just sort of reminds you that some real person is doing some real work to craft these garments in front of me. They haven't just come out of some magical factory somewhere that's 3D printing them. Oh, great example. So just a little, little slice. Great example. Yeah. All right. So what campaign put the effort bias in use spectacularly that you identified? All right, so there are so many good ones and there's so many places you see this out in the world, but the first one that always jumps to mind for me is the iconic fisherman versus bear, John West ad, which sort of is under the umbrella campaign of it's the fish that John West rejects or it's what John West rejects that makes John West the best. So good. All right, so talk us through what that campaign... Sure. So the idea for this one is that it is all the work that John West does to actually find the best fish that make the fish in the can of John West more valuable, more delicious. And so there's this one spot which opens on, it looks sort of like a National Geographic sort of documentary, and we see bears sort of standing by a flowing river fishing, and there's a voiceover talking about how these bears travel from very far away and how hard these bears work to find only the most delicious tuna. Unfortunately, that is the exact same tuna that John West wants. And then we see from off screen a fisherman in those signature yellow trawler pants run in and basically get into a sort of slightly comical pub style fist fight with this bear and he kicks him in the knees and they sort of smack each other around back and forth. And eventually uh, the fisherman kicks the bear in the nuts. I don't know what the the uh, swear rating is on this, but he basically, the fisherman kicks the bear in the nuts, the bear bends over in pain, the fisherman picks up the fish and <laughs> runs off screen with it. And it is just this wonderful, non-literal, but very entertaining story about the lengths John West goes to to get the best fish. This is insanely clever because fish in a can is pretty commoditized, right? It's like mm -hmm. you go and you stand in front of Woolworths and there's just this sea of fish in a can and generally people just buy whichever one is on special. Mm -hmm. And the cans look the same, the packaging look the same, they all seem to be yellow. And this was just so, so clever. And this campaign has been around for how long? I mean, this has been around for decades and it's gone from the UK to Australia and lots of other markets. And it's sort of evolved over the years as well, where it's um, sort of oscillated between less literal, like that example, like they clearly don't have fishermen going out and getting into fistfights with bears, but also more literal. So the, the most recent version of this done in Australia a couple of years ago talked a lot more about what 
the characteristics of a fish that got rejected were. So it might be the color or the look of the eyes or things that seem subjective, but I imagine probably do contribute to the overall taste and quality of the fish. Yeah. And so what they've done really cleverly with a insanely memorable tagline is that they're trying to what's the opposite of commoditize? De-commoditize? The, differentiate? Uh, differentiate, uh-huh. that's right, that not all fish in a can is created equal. Mm-hmm. And to really create a point of difference in a market where they didn't have a lot of point of differences. Mm, exactly. Such an excellent example. And just before we hit recording, I was talking to you about whether I thought that the most recent iteration, which was 2018 of this campaign, would work today. Because it seemed to focus a lot on like the physical attributes of the fish, like, oh, the color is off and the eyes are off. And that just seemed really superficial. And I think we agreed that we liked the bear example more Mm. because it's less about we're rejecting this fish because of the way it looks, but it's a better, for me anyway, a better representation of the effort bias of like the length that John West will actually and also metaphorically go to to source the best fish. Yeah, I think, I don't know if it's a really good example, but it might also be a really good example of of how the marketers commissioning the ads feel the world is at the time. And sometimes marketers do understandably feel a need to go more rational, to go more descriptive. It might be what their consumers are telling them. It might be the pressure they're getting from the supermarkets. It might be what's in the media. But Mm. often in not necessarily times of fear, but times of uncertainty, we strangely and perhaps incorrectly push harder towards rational messaging when often it's more like the original, the fisherman meets bear, that that provides far more memorability, but it's a bigger risk for marketers to take. Yeah, totally. I mean, I believe that playing it safe is the riskiest strategy of all. So um, bring on the bear. Bring on the bear. (laughs) Good. Got Marketing is brought to you by Campaign Del Mar, a marketing education platform for marketers and entrepreneurs. Learn practical, repeatable and actionable steps to market with confidence. Nail your email marketing strategy or join Campaign Classroom and learn to create memorable and effective marketing campaigns. These are not the kind of online programs where you are left floundering, unsure how to put theory into practice, nor will these programs sit unfinished for months. You can expect hands-on, tailored advice, accountability, and a supportive community, and you will walk away with lifelong marketing skills. Learn more at campaigndelmar.com. All right, so that's bias number one, the effort bias. Bias number two is the licensing effect. What is this, Dan? So the licensing effect, I think, is going to play a leading role in mankind's initial fall from grace as the dominant species on the planet. Because when it comes to behavioral biases, this one explains so many of the ways we self-sabotage. At its heart, the licensing effect is the loopholes that we make for ourselves that are epitomized by the concept of, because I did X, I deserve Y. Right? So because I went and smashed myself in the gym this morning, I deserve a cheeseburger for lunch. Because I've saved so hard for a house deposit, I deserve new sneakers. You know, Because I've done so well to stay off the booze Monday to Friday, I deserve to write myself off this weekend. And so we sort of have this internal bargaining mechanism where we're constantly trying to keep an equilibrium between our virtuous and our indulgent acts. So if we've just done something really virtuous, we are more inclined to go and do something indulgent. So go to the gym more inclined to smash a burger. If you've just done something really indulgent, 
right? Going and having a massive Saturday night, we're more inclined to go and do something virtuous like oh, I'm only eating salads on Sunday because that should just square everything off. Right. So it's like a permission-based marketing. Exactly. Yeah, right. Okay. So if we go to the, do you want to do a quick little detour into the research on this one? Absolutely. So this study comes to us from Wenbin Chow of National Sun Yat-sen University. The study was done back in 2011. After this researcher actually witnessed a colleague eating a very, very unhealthy lunch after seeing that colleague have a multivitamin in the morning. And he thought to himself, I wonder if this is a one-off or if something as small as having a multivitamin in the morning really can impact people's decision-making through the course of the day. So he constructed an experiment that did exactly that. They recruited participants, randomly separated them into two groups, kept everything the same except one group got multivitamins in the morning, the other group did not. Then they observed their behavior over the coming days and weeks. And what they found, again, not surprisingly, now that you know about this bias, is that the people who had had the multivitamin in the morning were far more likely to indulge in uh poor decision-making. They were more likely to smoke more, to drink to excess, to turn away from healthier activities like long walks and yoga, simply because they'd had this multivitamin in the morning that they thought was somehow magically counteracting all of these negative effects. Both groups were also given coupons for lunch on one of the days of the experiment. Uh, one option for lunch was a very indulgent buffet. The other lunch option was a very healthy organic buffet Again, the group that had the multivitamins in the morning was significantly more likely to select the indulgent buffet than the healthy organic fruit and veggie one. So the multivitamin in the morning let them license themselves to undertake a raft of questionable decision-making over the rest of the day. Yeah. Now I understand what you mean about how different biases affect different people in different ways because Mm -hmm. I say this, (laughs) but that may not be true. I don't think that the licensing effect would work on me in that way because if I go to the gym, I find I actually eat healthier because it's like, let's keep this momentum happening whereas it's like, well, it's, oh, shit, it's gone out the window. I didn't go to the gym and I ate a cheeseburger, so I might as well just have a beer. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it might work. So it it might not be applicable for you in diet and exercise. It might be applicable for you in work or it might be applicable for you in spending money. Mm. There's lots and lots of places where this can play out. And, you know, if you think about spending money, this is almost a hallmark of things like luxury car advertising, where most luxury car ads have some version of because you deserve it baked into them. Some notion that you have been working hard, you have been slaving away, doing all of these virtuous things, probably for other people, for a boss, for school fees, for the bank to pay off your mortgage. Isn't it about time that you got to drive this luxurious European car? Yeah. And that, my friends, is how you put the licensing effect into play. So we have two examples we're going to unpack with this one, right, Dan? Exactly. Which one would you like to start with? Let's go with a hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. Yeah. I mean, I love this because sometimes, like we spoke about with effort bias, you've got to sort of dig a little bit to understand what they're doing here. Other times they literally just take the definition of the bias, which I'm sure is not what they did, right? This is These biases are things that great creatives and copywriters have been doing forever, but it is just there in plain sight. A hard-earned thirst needs a big cold beer. It literally says you deserve it. You know, if you have been working hard, you deserve a treat and the best treat is this brand of beer. 
So this is an ad that was originally done in the uh, mid-1960s for a Queensland beer. So it actually wasn't a VB ad to start with. It was done for Belimba gold top beer. Uh, and then when they launched, needed to launch a campaign in Victoria in the late 1960s, they said, hey, we've got a great ad. It's the same audience and we're basically going to run it unchanged. And it has, I don't know, you might know this better than me. Is this is this the longest running ad on Australian TV or perhaps even the longest running beer ad in the world? I don't know. I'm not sure, but it is certainly an advertising and cultural icon. That's for sure. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's been parodied, it's been made and remade. It, it's almost like a second national anthem, isn't it? Totally. But what I love about this is the repurposing because I'm like a very, I'm big into not reinventing the wheel. And if you have mm. excellent creative in the can, please don't go and rewrite the script. Like it was there for the taking. And like Belimba in Queensland isn't the same as Victoria Bitter. And so it helped mm. VB grow to become the biggest selling beer in Australia. And what's amazing is that the cultural context at the time was beer, you know, which is one of the biggest advertising categories in the market, was not really advertised. People would just order a beer. Mm -hmm. There weren't really brands. There weren't brand personalities. There weren't brand ads. But there was talk of a big UK beer brand launching in Australia. So this, I think CUB realized we, we better do something. We better create some brands. And uh, I think that's how this whole campaign was born. And it, it is wonderful to see it enduring still till today. Yeah. And I think it's important to note that obviously it includes the licensing effect. So that sort of underpins the campaign idea. That's the sort of the creative strategy part of it. But then the voiceover, the mm. music, the copywriting, the rhyming, you know, um, also plays a really integral role in the success of this campaign. Absolutely. And I know you're a big fan of the idea of distinctive brand codes and, you know, how important it is to nail those and keep them consistent. And, you know, you really do have to respect the, the VB marketing team because every marketing director comes in and the first thing they want to do is change the agency and the second thing they want to do is change the campaign and the third thing they want to do is change the packaging. And while VB have wavered over the years, I think they've experimented with new formulations and changed the packaging a little bit. They've kept it pretty bloody consistent for a very long period of time. Yeah, and I actually read a really interesting stat about it that the guy that recorded the initial voiceover, John Mayon, mm -hmm. He tragically died. However, his family have said, you can actually continue to use all the recordings and they have oh, wow. digitally remastered his voice for more recent campaigns. So John Mayen never said on tap. Ah. He's never said those words on recording, but they have managed yes. to pull it from previous recordings to get him to say those words. Technology for the win. Artificial intelligence. We will have a hologram of him doing these ads until the end of time. <laughs> totally. Totally. All right. And what's the second example? I think it's, uh, it's, it feels like the perfect compliment for VB. You know, it's sort of at one end of the spectrum. <laughs> um, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, we've got L'Oreal uh, because I'm worth it. And um, again, this is a long-running, incredible campaign, one of those ones that we all wish we had done. And again, it just talks right into that licensing effect that you are worth it. You have clearly done something um, and you deserve to look wonderful using this product. Totally. So I actually have a little bit of an insight into this because I worked in the marketing team for L'Oreal for um, three years. Oh, you say it so nicely. I say it like a <laughs> bogan. L'Oreal, mate. <laughs> 
Um, it was sort of drilled into us, Dan. <laughs> so in 1971, a 23-year-old female junior copywriter, her name was Elon Specht, she was just sick of writing commercials from the perspective of the male gaze because, interestingly, every ad up until that point was narrated by a man. Like you would see an ad for hair dye <laughs> and it was the husband saying, doesn't she look fabulous? Oh. And I think she was, it was like, oh, it's embarrassing. Oh, oh. so bad. And I have a quote from her. My feeling was that I'm not writing another ad about looking good for men, she said. I sat down and I did it. It was very personal. I can recite to you the whole commercial because I was so angry when I wrote it. And that is how, because You're Worth It was born. So good. Amazing so story. Good. And it's still today, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's absolutely fine. It has changed. It started as because I'm worth it. Mm -hmm. And then it was actually like Heather Locklear mm -hmm. who said, I don't want it to just be about me. I want the audience to feel that they're worth it. And they changed it to because you're worth it. Nice. Yeah. So nice. And I hear not only has this been around for decades, I think this has been translated into something like 40 languages. Mm, that's so, right. You know, it's, it's a universal truth. Absolutely. Totally. Timeless notion for sure. All right, that brings us to our last biases, the peak end rule. What is this? All right, so the peak end rule is, is all about experiences and how we remember the experiences that we have. And while we think that what we want in life are great experiences, what we really want out of life are great memories. We all sort of want to mm. look back on our lives as these incredible stories filled with inspiring chapters and memory is a really kind of interesting, tricky thing because we all experience, let's just say roughly 16 hours of stuff every day of our lives. We don't remember most of it, mm -hmm. but we remember bits. And there is this idea um, that we have an experiencing self and a remembering self. So the experiencing self is, is us who is recording this podcast, who is going on that holiday, who is calling up about this insurance quote. And then there is the remembering self, which is us some point in the future that remembers some small snippet of this. And one of the founding fathers, or perhaps even the founding father of behavioral science, a gentleman by the name of Danny Kahneman, has been, over the course of his career, kind of obsessed with this idea of the experiencing self and the remembering self and the, the interactions and the interrelationships between the two of them. Over the course of his career, he's designed many, many experiments to help us understand how these two selves work with each other. Mm -hmm. And one of these studies involved participants coming in and being given headphones. And these headphones played audio tracks comprised of variable, annoying sounds. And the sounds varied from a kind of 1 out of 10 mildly irritating noise all the way up to a 10 out of 10 horrific, this is like the worst thing I can ever imagine hearing. And so participants would come in, they'd be given headsets, they'd listen to these tracks that would go up and down of these varying noises, they would then take the headsets off and the researchers would ask the participants, on a scale of 1 to 10, how annoying was what you just heard? Mm. Which is a question about their memory, right? They didn't ask them during the listening experience, they asked them at the end. On a scale of 1 to 10, how annoying is what you just heard? And what they found was quite interesting, right? What they found was that rather than people's answers being correlated with the average level of annoyance, they were far more closely correlated to the peak levels of annoyance and how the tracks ended. So if you've been given an audio track that started at a 1 or a 2 out of 10, jumped up to a 10, back down to a 2, back up to a 10, and then ended... Even though mathematically the average was maybe a four or a five, you're far more likely to remember it as an eight or a nine out of 10. 
And what Kahneman and his team deduced from this is that not all parts of an experience are created equal when it comes to forming memories. And that in fact, it is the peaks, the emotional high or low points, and the way things end that shape how we remember them. Just a question. Did they have to listen to, this is Frank Walker from National Tiles? <laughs> very, very possibly. I, I always think about Fran Drescher in early episodes of The Nanny as my <laughs> 10 out of 10, but Frank Walker, National Tiles, possibly on there as well. This research might have predated that. Oh, gosh, so annoying. Yes. Okay, how do we use this or not use this in marketing? All right, so the first thing that's really important with this is just to acknowledge that it exists, to acknowledge that there is a way that people remember experiences. And so we can either be accidental about that or we can be deliberate about it. Mm. When you are an experience-based business, whether that is a hotel or an airline, or you know, we even think, you know, work with universities around their open days. At the end of an open day, people are going to say to the person who went to it, hey, how was that open day that you went to? So we can either sort of leave it to chance as far as what they will remember, or we can de deliberately try and create an emotional high, hopefully not low point, that we know has a pretty good chance of, of lodging in their memory. So that's sort of philosophically how we think about it. The, the other consideration, philosophically, is that there is a lot of pressure, especially for, for people who work in you know, customer experience and user experience design, to create these outstanding end-to-end -end experiences. Mm. And in reality, that's a complete waste of time. It's well-intentioned, but it's a complete waste of time because actually what we should be doing is looking for one or two points of that experience, preferably towards the end, and thinking about how we can make those 15 out of 10 moments while ensuring there's nothing diabolical along the way, knowing that if we can do that, we will create a far more memorable experience than a outstanding but ultimately bland and forgettable eight or nine out of 10 across the board. I couldn't agree well. That's a lot. I think I just jammed a lot in there, but it's a big bias. Totally. I say this all the time to my customers, not all interactions with your brand are created equal and you need to identify those moments that matter and make sure that those are satisfactory. Exactly. Those experiences exceed expectations. Mm. But what are they? Know what those are. That's really key. And if you don't know, I've got a really, really difficult way to figuring it out pick up the phone and ask somebody. <laughs> well, that's true. The other thing you can do is you can create them. And I think some of the best examples of using this bias are from organizations creating peak moments. So perhaps a, a couple of quick examples. There is a uh, restaurant, very, very expensive restaurant in Melbourne called Vue de Monde. Uh, if you find yourself eating at Vue de Monde, uh, you have probably been on a waiting list for at least six months. You get to the end of a meal there, you know, and it's, it's been a 15-course degustation, wine-matched meal, incredible ambiance, overlooking the Melbourne city skyline, incredible service. And then the meal goes to end how all meals end, which is you put your hand up and you ask for the bill. And obviously the difference at Vue de Monde is you pause for a moment to reflect on the small family sedan you could have purchased in place of the meal that you've just, you've just eaten. <laughs> Nevertheless, you put your credit card down because you can't even do a runner. It's like you have to go down an escalator. It would be very difficult to, to dine and dash at Viewdemont. So you put your credit card down. You pray that it goes through. It does. You get up to leave. And the people of Viewdemont know that this is no way for one of the best dining experiences of your life to end. And so it doesn't end there. As you pass the counter to head to the elevator to go back to your car or down onto street level, you are given a small bag marked as for the morning after. And this bag must cost them, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say $4 on a $4,000 plus bill. 
And inside this bag are a couple of little brioche rolls, some free-range scrambled eggs. So no, they're not scrambled. Some free-range eggs, <laughs> some instructions for how to make perfect scrambled eggs in the morning. And this is the thing that people remember. You know, this little $4 gift bag that people get, this is what they talk about. This is what they publish to social media because it is this unexpected emotional high point right at the end of the experience. And the thing is, it's, it's not just Viewdemon that have realized this because every kid above the age of three knows that it doesn't matter how good or bad the birthday party was, right? It is what is in the lolly bag that counts. And if you don't get your lolly bag game on, you know, on flex, the party's not going to be remembered well, whatever you happen to have put on. Oh, such a good example because it plays into one of my favorite marketing tactics, which is surprise and delight. Mm -hmm. Like give people something they're not expecting. And yes, this is at the end of the dining experience, so it fits the peak end rule, but it's Mm -hmm. also a very normal moment that matters in the customer journey, which is a financial pain point. Exactly. Anytime you need to hand over the credit card is a moment that matters. So even need to pick up the phone and ask your customers that we're telling you that, that at that point of purchase, at that time that you need to put down the card, you need to find a way to offset that so that they are happily putting down their card. Yes. And what's brilliant about this is it happens just after you pay. Mm. And so, so I think about our experiences playing out like this infinite scrolling Facebook timeline. And so the last thing that you have is this scary credit card experience. But then the next thing that they jam in there is this wonderful surprise and delight moment, which just kind of pushes the memory of paying away mm. and it trumps it with something more emotionally charged and more positive. Totally. Amazing. So we're going to talk about Mac versus PC as a campaign that deploys. Yeah. So again, you know, just the caveat, not really the caveat, but the the explanation out there that the thing with behavioral science as a field of study is it doesn't discover things. It identifies and codifies and documents things that exist and helps us understand what they are so we can replicate them. So again, this is insights that great creative people have long known. And I don't think that the people who wrote Mac versus PC went through a list of behavioral biases and said, ah, this is the one we're going to use. Nevertheless, it's a wonderful example. I'm not sure if people remember the Mac versus PC ads from the early 2000s, but there was a lot of them. They were quite hilarious. They you know, featured a guy who looked like Mac and a guy who looked like a PC standing next to each other, talking about the various features. And I mean, I might let you do a better job than I have of explaining how the ads worked. But what was brilliant from a peak end rule perspective is at the time that this happened, most of us, if we'd grown up with computers, had grown up with PCs. I mean, having Macs, unless you had some sort of weird auntie who was an artist, you probably had a PC growing up if you had a computer at all. And looking back on it, my memories of PC ownership kind of feel okay. It's like I remember playing games on them and I remember my friends coming around and them playing games and it was all pretty positive. And then this sort of relentless series of ads came out reminding me about all of these other negative peak moments I'd had with PC ownership that, you know, we'd buy things from overseas and they wouldn't work with our computer or it would come in seven different boxes and a massive set of instructions to work out how it all worked or we'd get viruses, you know, or we'd buy a new printer and not understand how to install a driver to make the printer work. All of these things and I'm watching these ads saying, yes, I do remember all of this stuff and Despite my initial feeling that PC ownership was great, in hindsight, it was actually pretty terrible a lot of the time and maybe I would be open to looking at something different. So they're trying to like rewrite your memories. Yeah, or at least rekindle the ones that Mm. I have suppressed. Right, yeah. This is a great campaign example because I'm fascinated with archetypes Mm. and what they've done with this is that they have personified 
a brand. Mm -hmm. So they're like, if PC was a person, what would he or she look like? And they've actually gone and done that. And if Mac was a person, what would they look like? And they would look a little bit like Steve Jobs, right? Mm -hmm. And that's exactly what the person in these campaigns looks like. And then, you know, there's a little bit of an old-fashioned, fuddy-duddy kind of vibe happening with the PC. So I thought that this was really great in terms of like bringing to life brand archetypes. Mm. It also sort of completely rewrote the rule book on how to do side-by-side comparison advertising because I think historically, you know, there's a big school of thought that says you never do side-by-side. You never compare yourself to the competitor. You just ignore them. But if you do find yourself in a situation where you are compared to a competitor, you are attacking them Mm. and you are undermining them. And what this did was it just did it in such a gentle, friendly, but still undermining way that it just felt okay that Mac was calling out PC for being terrible, but nobody thought Mac was mean, Mm. which is quite brilliant. Because I think that when you incorporate humor, Mm -hmm. you can get away with almost anything. Yeah. And it wasn't really humor at the expense of PC. He was just this kind of slightly clumsy, endearing IT guy that we all know somebody like that. So anyway, they absolutely nailed it. Uh, They don't need me to tell them that. Totally. Great, great, great. All right, so those are our three biases. We've got the effort bias, we have the licensing effect, and then we have the peak end rule. And we're just going to end with an honourable mention of the spotlight effect. Can you just tell us briefly what the spotlight effect is? Absolutely. So the spotlight effect is the idea that we consistently overestimate how much attention other people are paying us. So we sort of walk down the street, we trip over and spill our coffee, and then we spend the rest of the day thinking, oh my goodness, I'm such an idiot. And everybody's probably still laughing about that stupid person they saw trip over and spill their coffee everywhere. When in reality, most other people didn't notice. And if they did notice, they probably didn't think about it for more than three seconds because guess what? They're actually really busy thinking about themselves. Yeah. So very quickly, there's some research. uh, I think the the researcher's name was Gilovitz. The the study that they constructed was getting students to put on sort of ridiculous, embarrassing t-shirts and then sending them through a crowded classroom. And before they went into the classroom, they asked them what proportion of other students did they think would notice their ridiculous t-shirts, which in this instance were these bright yellow shirts, oversized shirts, with Barry Manilow's face blown up on them. So you put a a university student in a bright yellow shirt with a Barry Manilow face, you send him through a crowded classroom, you ask them, what proportion of your peers do you think will notice this? On average, people thought 50% of people would notice in reality because then they surveyed people afterwards, how many people noticed Barry's new shirt? Around 25% of people noticed. Wow. So we tend to not just overestimate, but double the attention we think other people are paying us. And I think there's a big lesson for brands in this that when we think we're being brave, when we think we are the brand wearing the bright yellow Barry Manilow t-shirt and everybody is going to notice, at best, half of what we think will happen. But in reality, it's probably far less than that. Oh my God, I'm just going to go on Instagram and I'm going to post about it and I'm going to go viral. I'm going to be famous. Exactly, exactly. (laughs) If only. Yeah, exactly. It would work, except that everybody else is thinking the exact same thing. (laughs) That's the problem. (laughs) And also the average reach of a Instagram post is 1.42%. So... Yeah. Good luck with that. Exactly. All right. So the brand that you instantly think of with the spotlight effect is? I mean, this one slightly similar to the L'Oreal example, but in this instance, we're talking about Maybelline. And there's that wonderful line, which is 
maybe she's born with it. Maybe it's Maybelline, which is sort of this suggestion that this is what other people are saying about you, right? So we're not going to tell you you're not the center of everyone's universe, right? We're actually going to play into the idea that you think you are. And as you walk past, there is a really high likelihood that other people are gossiping and whispering and saying, you know, is she born with that? Or maybe not. So I just think it's a wonderful idea to play into something that our brains already tell us is happening, whether it is or is not. The pronunciation was chef's kiss. Just going to say that now. Thank you. Thank you. I've been working on it. (laughs) So Maybelline is owned by L'Oreal. And I was the senior brand manager for Maybelline New York. So that's the brand that I got to work on. Love it. It's always going to have a very special place in my heart. And you have absolutely nailed the internal narrative behind that tagline and how iconic it was that that's exactly, this is not about, I went on a Reddit deep dive Uh to see what, (laughs) Uh I know, right, to see what people thought of it. And there was like this, you know, as Reddit communities that just eat each other alive. Mm. There were people like, I think what they're trying to say is that Maybelline Cosmetics is so natural, you wouldn't know the difference between whether she's naturally beautiful or wearing the cosmetics. I'm like, dudes, that's not what's going on here. And then everyone just jumped <laughs> on there going, that's not what's happening here. Yeah. Right? It's the fact that everyone is turning to look at her and that that's the effect that Maybelline Cosmetics gives you. <laughs> yeah. You know, if that's what people believe is going on in their head, you know, in, in all of our minds, we are all the stars of a movie about our life and everybody else is just supporting cast. And so if that's people's internal narrative, I mean, far be it from us as advertisers to tell them that's not true. They say, hey, if, if you're going to be the star of your own movie, you might as well look good doing it. That is such a good point. I really I really love that. Interestingly, the Maybe She's Born With It, Maybe It's Maybelline was retired in 2014. But like all good things, it is back as a TikTok challenge, which I just freaking love. Of course. Yes. Of course. So wait, t- tell me more. What what happens in said TikTok challenge? So it was like a call to arms for creators to jump on there and to use the original audio mm-hmm. of maybe she's born with it, maybe it's Maybelline to show their makeup videos. Cool. And so many massive creators have jumped on this. It started with Emily DiDonato, who has been a Maybelline brand ambassador since I worked at Maybelline in 2008. Mm. And I think even before that, and so she sort of kick-started it. She's a supermodel or a model. I don't know what the difference is, but um, <laughs> she sort of kick-started it on TikTok and then some like TikTok creators jumped on it and TikTok did its thing. And I just love that about TikTok, that what's old is all new again. Yeah. And it's reintroduced this new generation of consumers to these iconic slogans, like maybe she's born with it or because you're worth it or got milk. Yeah. You know, all of these are, I just, I love that. I mean, I, I feel you because, you know, running an agency where the average person in here is at least 15 years younger than I am. There are so many cultural references that myself and a few of the other now old timers have. And the young kids have no idea what we're talking about, but at least through TikTok, uh, they might be able to catch up and, and have some some idea what we're banging on about. <laughs> yeah, let's hope. Let's hope. Yeah, exactly. Well, Dan, it has been an absolute pleasure. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with you. I highly recommend to everyone listening to go and check out the Bad Decisions podcast because 
Dan and his guest in some of the episodes, Dr. Mel, they go into each heuristic in detail. So there's an entire episode about each heuristic. So if you are massively nerding out on this like we are, then I really recommend that you do that. And then, of course, head over to hardhat.com.au to check out what Hard Hat are doing in the creative advertising space. Brilliant. Hey, thanks, mate. I've had I've had a wonderful time here. And good plug at the end, peak end rule. I will definitely look back on this interview fondly uh, and remember that you gave the, the, the podcast a plug, the agency a plug. There's really nothing else I could wish for. <laughs> oh, thank you so much, Dan. Thank you. You listened right up until the end. So why not hit that subscribe button and keep the good marketing rolling? Podcast reviews are like warm hugs. And they're also the best way to support a small business. You can connect with me, Mia Feilman, on Instagram or LinkedIn. And feel free to send me a message. I'm super friendly. 